Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We have three segments in the show today. The first two reflect on the Christchurch Call Summit, a meeting of world leaders and tech executives held just two weeks ago to discuss efforts to police hate speech and extremism on social media. And the third segment is an interview with New York State Senator Anna Kaplan on legislation she has introduced to contend with hate speech and misinformation. In March 2019, an Australian man killed dozens of Muslim worshippers at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. The attacks were announced on the online message board 8chan before they began, and the killer live-streamed the murders on Facebook before the video propagated hundreds of thousands of times on the social media platform. The attack served as an inspiration for extremists globally, including the perpetrator of a mass shooting in El Paso that killed 20, in which the shooter referred to the Christchurch killer's writings in a manifesto, and another at a synagogue in Poway, California, that appeared to be inspired by the New Zealand atrocity. In a bid to address the online facilitation and propagation of extremist and terrorist activity, the New Zealand and French governments partnered on the Christchurch Call to Action Summit in Paris nearly two years ago, on 15 May 2019. The call to action, quote, outlines collective voluntary commitments from governments and online service providers intended to address the issue of terrorist and violent extremist content online and to prevent the abuse of the Internet, as occurred in and after the Christchurch attacks, unquote, according to the Christchurch Call website. While the New Zealand and French governments initiated the call to action, 18 additional governments joined at its announcement in May 2019, and 33 more joined at the UN General Assembly meeting in September 2019. Private companies, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, have indicated their official support as well. The Trump administration declined to join the call to action in 2019, citing concerns over free speech. This spring, the Biden State Department announced the United States would join the call, quote, formally joining those working together under the rubric of the call to prevent terrorists and violent extremists from exploiting the internet, unquote. Here are some voices to give you a sense of this year's summit. I don't think I necessarily at the time that we brought the call together would have imagined that two years on we would have seen the progress that we had and the ongoing commitment. Let's have that conversation around the ethical use of algorithms and how they can use, be used in a positive way and for positive interventions. We've just launched a new legislation that will require all these tech giants swiftly to identify and take down illegal content. We need to set the bar higher. We believe we can fight terrorism and respect people's rights and freedoms at the same time. And because of adjustments we have made to our recommendation systems, uh, views of hate speech have now dropped to seven or eight views per 10,000 views. So every 10,000 things that you can see on Facebook, seven or eight of them might be hate speech. I wish it was zero, but again, that is far lower than at the time we, we last met. Since the Christchurch call, we've made substantial progress, but we recognize further refinement is needed to our content incident protocol. There is more we can do to bring more companies representing more platforms and more technologies into this effort. You just heard, in order, clips from New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, French President Emmanuel Macron, 
United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Facebook Vice President of Global Affairs Nick Clegg, Twitter Chief Legal Officer Vijay Agade, and Nick Rasmussen, Executive Director of the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. To learn more about the summit and the dialogue around it, we're going to hear two interviews, both conducted by Courtney Ratch, a member of the tech policy press Masthead. Courtney is a journalist, author, and advocate whose work focuses on technology, media, and rights. She's a fellow at the Center for Media, Data, and Society at Central European University, a former advocacy director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, and a member of the Christchurch Call Advisory Network, the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism Transparency Working Group, the OECD TVEC Expert Group on Transparency, and the Outreach and Partnership Chair of GigaNet, the Academic Network of Internet Governance Scholars. She has a PhD in International Relations and is the author of Cyber Activism and Citizen Journalism in Egypt, Digital Dissidents and Political Change, and Media Development and Countering Violent Extremism, an Uneasy Relationship and a Need for Dialogue. First up, Courtney speaks with Paul Ash, the New Zealand Prime Minister's Special Representative on Cyber and Digital and the coordinator of the Christchurch Call. Here's Courtney. I am joined um, here by Paul Ash, who heads up the Christchurch Call work for the New Zealand government supporting the Prime Minister. Um, as we know, the Christchurch Call was a project started by the Prime Minister with the support of French President Emmanuel Macron in the wake of a violent, deadly terrorist attack on two mosques in New Zealand in 2019. And coming out of that attack and this need to address violent extremism online and eradicate terrorist and violent extremist content, We've seen a really robust body of work start to take hold with this Christchurch Call community. And one of the things that came out of the summit was a joint work plan or kind of some priorities that the prime minister and other heads of state industry and civil society have coalesced around. So, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what are these key priorities coming out of the second year anniversary summit? Thanks, Courtney. Um, uh, certainly can. At the about 18-month point of the Christchurch call work, we did a stock take of the call community, uh, a survey and um, across the, the, the entire community to understand what had worked well, what needed more emphasis, and where we should focus our efforts next. And, and out of that really came three or four themes for the um, meeting that was held earlier this week um, of government, industry, and civil society leaders. Those themes have fed into a, a work plan for at least a year ahead in, in four key areas. Probably the, the most um, significant, I guess, uh, in terms of setting the platform for our ongoing work is continuing to build the call community. So making sure that the various constituents who take part in the work of the call, whether they're from government, from industry or civil society, uh, are able more readily to engage with each other on, on their shared work um, to uh, have conversations across a diverse network of, of participants uh, and to look at expanding both the geographical reach and diversity of expertise in that community. So if we think about the civil society uh, participation, um, looking to ensure that that starts to um, reflect a range of different regions in the globe uh, more effectively, but also brings together the technical community, the human rights community, um, and um, uh, you know, in human rights, we mean that full range from freedom of expression through to victims' rights, uh, but also communities that are particularly affected by terrorist and violent extremist content. It means um, enlisting a wider range of online service providers and companies um, to participate, 
Uh, and then it means, I think, consolidating uh, that grouping as, as a very diverse, large community uh, that's able to engage on some key issues. That, we hope, should give us a really good, solid foundation for the three other areas of work in the work plan. Uh, and the first of those is con continuing to build on and improve the work that has been done already on crisis response. How do we as a community, governments, companies and civil society, respond when an incident in the offline environment goes online and is used both to spread the impact and reach of that event uh, and uh, in many instances to incite and radicalise folk. There's a bit of work to do there. There's quite a lot that's been done, but I think certainly the meeting that we had earlier this week saw a real focus on tying together some of the technical pieces with the wider strategic communications task uh, that is critically important in any crisis response. There's a piece of work to be done there, um, I think, around transparency as well, and that was one of the themes leading into the summit. How do we um, improve transparency both uh, for online service providers as they think about um, addressing terrorist and violent extremist content, and also governments and the measures that they put in place um, to think about this sort of content. And that transparency is probably really important for fulfilling and upholding particular commitments around human rights and fundamental freedoms in the call and a free, open and secure internet. Uh, it's also important for informing uh, the fourth main strand of the work, which is around the question of user journeys and algorithmic processes. And this is probably one of the more sensitive and difficult issues that the call is needing to engage on. Uh, and one of the most important, as we think about terrorist and violent extremist content, how do we find a safe uh, working environment for companies, civil society and governments to understand the outcomes of those algorithmic processes and design uh, really a new generation of support and positive interventions to help users as, the, as they encounter content that is either terrorist or violent extremist in nature. So, so it's really those four big pieces. There's some other work that we've got uh, to do around uh, resilient societies. There's some work to do uh, around ensuring that we can have the conversations on human rights and fundamental freedoms within the core community uh, that will support users to, to uphold those. But those, those four key pieces, building the community, crisis response, transparency and algorithmic outcomes really will be the focus of our work in the coming year. Great. Well, thank you for going through those priorities. I mean, those are some pretty big topics to delve into. So I think everyone's going to have their work cut out for them. And, um, you know, just for full transparency, I was on the transparency working group um, in the weeks leading up to the summit as we were trying to come together on an agreed set of priorities. And, you know, it is pretty impressive, I think, that you got together governments, uh, civil society and tech companies to come up with in a very short time period. I mean, I think we were working for less than a month to come up with a set of joint priorities. And if we think about this algorithmic journey and the transparency, I mean, the Christchurch call is a voluntary set of actions and, and principles that these companies have set up, have signed up to. Do you think that we're going to see mandated algorithmic transparency and, you know, there are some legislative proposals in Europe and the United States to subject algorithms to greater oversight or, you know, reduce uh, the protections from intermediary liability for platforms because of that? How does how do these priorities and this this work join in with kind of some of the more hard law, like regulatory approaches that we're seeing around the world? 
Thanks, Courtney. It's a, it's a great question. And I think the answer actually lies in the first part of your, your comments, really, that bringing together governments, civil society and companies in a conversation on some of these difficult issues enables us to understand the tools we have to deal with um, unintended or harmful consequences. So the, the call itself um, provides uh, um, in its commitments for governments as part of their role um, to regulate where appropriate. And you know, a set of voluntary commitments would never ever override the, the ability of governments to do that. It's more about affirming the fact that that's one of the possibilities in addressing terrorist and violent extremist content. The call goes a lot further than that though, in that it talks about uh, a range of other things that online service providers, um, governments and civil society can do together uh, to try and address terrorist and violent extremist content that I guess fit into what you'd call a softer end of the tools of government or regulatory spectrum. And in a sense, you know, the, the way technology moves, the deeper understanding that, or different understandings that, that those three groupings have of how it operates makes a, a conversation essential before uh, we move to regulatory mechanisms. Now, there are, as you've noted, regulatory uh, imperatives underway in a number of different jurisdictions at the moment. Um, I suspect those will probably continue, and that's you know, right and proper for those for those jurisdictions. From the core perspective, we would like to see the ability for some reasonably deep and thoughtful conversations around the impacts of algorithmic processes, the impacts of on users and how they experience the online environment, and that full range of tools from positive interventions, treating this as a public health issue, for instance, um, right the way through to, um, if needed, regulatory measures uh, as part of that grouping of responses or activities. Thanks so much, Paul. That's that's very interesting. And I think, you know, now that we have seen the United States um, join on the Christchurch call and given that many of the companies that I think are, you know, at the center of a lot of these debates over radicalization and content circulation, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, et cetera, um, being based in the United States is an interesting development. And I, and I want to ask you about that. You know, we saw in a week prior to the summit that the United States reversed course from the Trump administration, which had not joined the call, uh, saying that it was concerned about freedom of expression implications, and an about face under the about Biden administration deciding to join on to the call, sending Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to represent the United States um, at the summit, along with you know many other world leaders, can you talk a little bit about you know what is your understanding of what changed and what do you think is gained by having the United States join in and be part of this call and this expansion of the community, as you put it earlier? I think the call, when it was first established, was designed to work with uh, the participants that were able to be part of a, a voluntary set of commitments and of a community. As it was being stood up and worked through, we did talk uh, at some length with the US administration. And the, while they didn't formally participate or support the call in, in, in its entirety, the statement that was issued back in 2019 was very, very positive about uh, the commitments in the call and the intent of the call. And we've certainly kept in close touch with US officials as the call has rolled out and developed. And in particular, there's, there's some real expertise in the US environment that has contributed to both shaping the work and also early on aspects of the text and the call, particularly in an area that I know is really important to you around media freedoms and the 
protection of um, the ability of the press to go about their job and report on terrorist and violent extremist incidents and content. As that work developed, we, we've kept in, in, in that close contact with the US and the new administration, and, and I'll, I'll leave them to speak to the, the reasons for signing um, up or not, but the new administration took another look at it. Uh, we engaged with them and they came to the conclusion that it would be possible to become a full supporter of the call. The call community as a whole absolutely welcomes that. We think it's a, a tremendous step forward. Uh, we're delighted to have the US on board. I know leaders, ours and, and uh, President Macron and others um, were very supportive of this step forward. Uh, we talked with a, a range of other call supporters, companies, civil society folk, and, and got a similar set of messaging that it was really helpful to have the US on board. So, you know, what I think it will do is lend additional momentum to a community that's already working hard on some of these issues or bring US perspectives into that discussion in a way that I guess completes the, the Troika, as it were, we've, we've had strong US civil society participation, strong US company participation, and having the US government there as well just adds, um, I guess, another piece in what is quite a complex jigsaw and some real momentum to the work. Well, I think that is um, a, a very apt description of the complex jigsaw that is content moderation and fighting terrorism and violent extremism. Um, Certainly content and addressing content online is only a fraction of what is needed to really address the root causes, I think, uh, as you kind of alluded to earlier and is recognized in the call. Nonetheless, you know, there is a lot of focus going on to the issue of content moderation and, and you know, de-amplifying, uh, reducing, filtering content. So, I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast and, and following this topic are going to be interested to see how these work streams around, you know, crisis response, transparency, user journeys and algorithmic journeys end up, you know, what they mean for internet governance, for content moderation, et cetera, and certainly expanding the community uh, will be an important part of gaining legitimacy for those efforts. Just before we wrap up, I mean, with respect to expanding the community and thinking about, you know, states that are signed on and joining, you know, there is some tension there. You know, uh, India, for example, is a member of the Christchurch call. Um, at the same time, they have censored the internet in Kashmir. They have um, censored social media during democratic protests in their country. How is the New Zealand government and the Christchurch Call community thinking about making sure that some of the processes and practices and approaches put into place to combat, you know, what some might call legitimate terrorism and, and violent extremism are not weaponized and used against, um, you know, domestic protest movements or, or entities and, and expression that, is simply dissent uh, or independent criticism? Again, a, a fantastic question. And I might just treat it in two parts if I could, because I think the, the, the piece you described beforehand around a focus solely on content moderation or the challenges of focusing too much on that actually goes to the second part. So just in respect to the first piece, the call commitments have been designed uh, in a way that treats this problem holistically, that... Actually, the problem of terrorist and violent extremist content online is not just an online issue, that there are offline drivers of that and societal issues that sit underneath that manifestation of content. Uh, and 
you know, there, there is work within the core community to do uh, to focus in on those treatment, the, the treatment of issues like a, a resilient society, um, underlying drivers of the kind of content we're trying to work with. Certainly domestically here in New Zealand, our Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Christchurch um, mosque attacks has focused very strongly on that. And there's a whole work program being built on some of those offline aspects and how they interact with the online environment. We'd like to be able to contribute uh, what we learn from that into a discussion across the wider community and look at that more holistic approach. It's one of the reasons I think the call uh, in its early iterations talks very, very strongly about the abuse of the online environment because it, it's not solely a problem of the online environment, it's one that happens elsewhere. And if I fast forward that through to the commitments in the call around protection of a free, open and secure internet and international human rights law and fundamental freedoms, those were put in um, very explicitly into the call uh, in order to make sure that it didn't um, open itself to the danger, I guess, of states um, using the call uh, to act in ways that were inconsistent with those outcomes. The first thing I'd say there is I haven't seen a single state um, to date cite the call as a reason for um, acting inconsistently with those, those commitments. So that's a, a positive and one I think if, if any did, we would want to as a community, um, engage very rapidly to make sure that that was not uh, used as a justification. And I don't think there's anything in the call that would actually enable them to do so. It's been very carefully uh, drafted in that sense. The next step is where we have supporters that may um, struggle to uphold those commitments or um, be involved in um, activities that are antithetical to them. And this applies as much to online service providers as it does to um, governments. As I mentioned earlier, the building a core community, um, an effective core community discussion um, is going to be critical to this. There's a real need to build trust, dialogue and engagement in that process and to engage as a, as a full community with uh, other participants in that community on how they implement commitments and work on upholding the key principles that underpin the core of the call. Part of that will be about, as a community, working on processes for new and existing members to be supported uh, to implement commitments in a way that's consistent with the, 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 those, those underpinning pieces of the call architecture. But also, um, as we go forward, to engage in discussions around um, uh, problems or issues that arise in a trusted environment. And I, I, I think that's probably where the real strength of a multi-stakeholder approach to this problem kicks in. And one of the reasons that as um, uh, the New Zealand government, we've been so focused on a multi-stakeholder approach. We can all come at this from slightly different perspectives if we are civil society, governments and um, companies um, uh, engaging in it. And if we're able to build the right environment to support and engage with governments or companies that are struggling with those aspects of the call, hopefully we can um, engage in a range of conversations from um, less public to more public uh, in detail with supporters that are that are struggling in areas around um, the free, open and secure internet or international human rights law and fundamental freedoms. Um, those challenges are out there for the internet as it stands. Um, they're, they're significant, certainly from a New Zealand perspective. We are always troubled when we see things like internet shutdowns or efforts to censor uh, both content on the internet or um, the access um, to the internet for members of a, 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 a population or a society. Um, it's really important, I guess, in the core community that we uh, almost turn that around in a sense and are able to engage in really constructive discussions on it, actually the call can then become a platform for that kind of engagement and conversation with 
um, its supporters. So we, we certainly acknowledge the, the challenge out there and it's something that, um, along with other call supporters, we've been really pleased to see a focus on in the discussion leading up to the summit and in the work program going forward. Great. Well, Paul, thank you. Speaking of conversations, for engaging in a conversation here with the Tech Policy Podcast Sunday Show and with me, I'm Courtney Raj. It has been really interesting speaking with you and learning about these priorities. And I'm sure as the call goes forward and these work priorities get translated into actual actions, we will be covering that. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, Courtney. It's It's a real pleasure as always to talk with you. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you are there, join our newsletter. We're in the middle of two interviews focused on the Christchurch Call Summit that took place earlier this month. Next, Courtney speaks with Dia Kayali. Here's Courtney. So, Dia Kayali, you are the Associate Director of Advocacy at Mnemonics, which is a group that, in addition to many other important human rights documentation things, also runs the Syrian Archive, the Yemen Archive, uh, which documents human rights abuses and preserves an archive of those abuses, uh, human rights documentation online. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about what these archives are about so our listeners will understand, you know, about some of the issues we're going to talk about related to the Christchurch call and the efforts to eliminate terrorist and violent extremism online? Sure. So as you mentioned, um, Mnemonic is sort of the parent organization for several different archives. And we started with the Syrian archive. And the Syrian archive came out of a desire to just preserve some of the documentation of the conflict that was uh, being posted on social media and that people were creating and they weren't sure what to do with. So that's how we started is just um, gathering that and creating digital memory. And it grew into something much more than that. So um, as we were gathering this this documentation, we created a process to actually verify it and put it into data sets that are useful for justice purposes or just understanding what has happened. So we have data sets that are focusing on specific incidents, like the bombing of a specific mosque. We have data sets that are focused on chemical weapons attacks, and we have data sets that are focused on attacks on civilian infrastructure. And this is content that can be used by prosecutors in places that have universal jurisdiction. It's content that's helpful for the UN in the UN investigation into war crimes in Syria. And it's content that Syrians understand is holding our memory of the conflict. Um, So it still serves as digital memory, but it also serves as evidence and documentation. Some of our listeners might be familiar with the Syrian archive because it was in the news a few years back when there were reports that YouTube had erased hundreds of thousands of videos um, from the Syrian archive that they had been removed I guess, because they somehow got caught up in a filter meant to 
eliminate terrorist content, but of course it's very hard for an algorithm to figure out if something is promoting terrorism or documenting evidence of, of, of terrorism and war crimes. Tell us a little bit about what happened there and why that raises concerns about these coordinated efforts to eradicate terrorism and extremism online. Yeah, so I would say that in some ways, our collection has been a canary in a coal mine. So what we saw is that in June of 2017, Google announced that it was going to start using machine learning to detect poorly defined terrorist and violent extremist content. Uh, we weren't sure exactly what content they were referring to. And, um, you know, advocates didn't get any sort of notification of that announcement. But about a month later, people started noticing that their collections were disappearing at a much higher rate than they'd previously seen. You know, improper content takedowns have always been a problem, but this was unprecedented. And by August of 2017, two months after Google had instituted this machine learning algorithm, it had turned into a crisis. As you mentioned, we were seeing hundreds of thousands of videos removed from our collections. Um, and this is just our collections, just what we can see. We know that it was really a crisis for everybody who had been putting their content on YouTube. I mean, we have problems on other platforms, but at this time, what we were really noticing was YouTube. So people who'd put their collections on YouTube, uh, non-traditional media, uh, a lot of, of the reporting that's coming from Syria is you know, not going to be mainstream media. It's people who have a camera and a YouTube channel and are still doing really good reporting considering. So we were seeing that content removed. We were seeing content from really well-known human rights organizations get removed. Reliable news channels get removed over and over again. So they would um, you know, we would see them, the entire channel improperly removed. So that could be dozens or hundreds or maybe thousands of videos. We would work with YouTube to get it reinstated because we know the people who are running the channel or it's a source for us. And then two days later or a week later or a month later, it would be deleted again. So it really um, was a crisis, as I mentioned, in terms of evidence, in terms of documentation, but also there's this real feeling among Syrians of you know, the whole world has sort of ignored what's happened to us. And now all of our digital memory is just getting deleted and there's no consequences for these platforms. And frankly, unfortunately, that problem has continued. It's, uh, you know, many years later, it's what we're still really focused on. And, and it's particularly acute in places like Syria or Yemen, where there are not free and independent media, where there is a limited access to both local and international media to cover that conflict. You know, I think that is one of the you know concerns that is also raised by taking down content on these platforms that can bypass some of the censorship or lack of independent media coverage. Um, in some of these conflicts where they are relying on user-generated content, um, whether by citizen journalists, activists, or others. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, we saw governments get together to create this Christchurch call to action aiming to eliminate terrorist and violent content from the internet. And you and I were in a meeting with Jacinda Ardern, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who started the Christchurch call after a terrorist attack that left 51 people in two mosques dead. And I remember when we were sitting with her on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly meeting and asking, you know, what is the goal here? Is it to eradicate terrorism and extremist content from the internet? Because if so, 
you might end up getting a lot of protected content. And it feels like um, there is this global effort to eradicate content, but there has not been a discussion about what level of tolerance we have for the removal of content that should be protected, like what you were talking about with the Syrian archive. Do you think that conversation has advanced at all? You know, we just got out of this uh, summit on the second year anniversary. You gave an intervention there. You led the drafting process for a statement by the Civil Society Advisory Network, where both you and I serve. So has that has that um, conversation developed the way it should? And, and what are some of the things that you're paying attention to right now in this debate? So I would say broadly, unfortunately, the answer to your question is no. I don't think that we have had a real discussion yet about all of the incredibly important content that we know is already getting deleted in growing efforts to, you know, as you mentioned, the, the terminology is eliminate or eradicate. And you, you simply can't do that. Um, you, you can't have the goal of eliminating everything without having some sort of determination of this is the amount of protected speech we'd be willing to remove. That estimation has not happened at all. I think the only, frankly, the only positive growth that I've seen in this discussion in the last two years has been that people are acknowledging that there is human rights evidence and documentation that's getting deleted. So there's been a little bit of movement in terms of at least getting an, an acknowledgement that that's a problem um, and some interest uh, in particular, I think there's some interest from GIFCT and from groups like Tech Against Terrorism in thinking about how to solve this issue. But frankly, right now, we are still at the level of hearing policymakers, both at platforms and at companies, say, we need to get this content down as quickly as possible. Um, and also, concerningly, we need to talk more about more and more information sharing. Um, but they're not talking about really what is a crisis in removal of incredibly important content. And as you mentioned, not just human rights documentation and evidence, it's newsworthy content. And sometimes it's the only source of news from some of these conflict areas. Now, you mentioned the GIFCT, which stands for the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism. And you know, one of the things that the GIFCT has done recently, a an industry group that has recently spun off to create itself as an NGO, but still, you know, run by representatives of the company. One of the things that the GIFCT does is create a shared database of hashes that relate to content that have been deemed to be terrorist or extremist content that violates their terms of service so that they can share that information across with different members of that Give CT platform. And we've seen that the New Zealand and French governments and other governments involved in the Christchurch call want to leverage the Give CT as kind of the mechanism to put into practice a bunch of the commitments that these tech companies and governments have made, including working more closely together, for example, during crises. So, you know, on the one hand, you have this experience needing to you know document and preserve these archives but you're also Syrian you have experience you know as somebody who works with communities who have been the victims and and targets of terrorism so you know it feels like you have a very comprehensive perspective on this 
So how do you think that the GIF CT should be approaching this idea of, you know, taking off, say, the live stream of a terrorist attack or preventing the circulation of a video of a terrorist or extremist attack with, you know, this other interest in preserving newsworthy content, preserving evidence of war crimes, and, you know, doing so quickly, uh, you know, there's a lot of different interests at stake. How are you thinking about balancing those? Well, one thing I should say is that when it comes to the newsworthy and evidentiary and documentary content, one of the tensions there that isn't coming from companies that I've tried to keep in mind is also about privacy and security. So this is another layer to the problem. That being said, I think that that one of the discussions that we had at this two-year summit was around crisis response protocols. Currently, GIFCT has one protocol. It's the content incident protocol, and it is very limited. It is only about live streamed footage from a perpetrator or an accomplice. You know, I think there's interest in expanding that. And frankly, I think that's a bad idea. I think that it would be much better to have a series of very, very limited protocols or rules that are hyper-focused on a specific type of content we want to remove rather than this broad category of terrorist and violent extremist content. Um, There's a huge difference between a perpetrator live streaming his attack and a video that captures someone who happens to be holding a flag that has the, uh, the word Hamas on it, but they're at a protest in Palestine. Yet this content essentially gets treated the same. So in terms of next steps and and what I hope to see, I mean, I think, as I said, you know, currently GIFCT has a pretty limited protocol. I think the Christchurch call interest is in expanding that. And that's why I'm there, you know, is to ensure that whatever policies, whatever protocols get put into place, they are narrow, they are fit for purpose, and they are acknowledging this definitional problem that we're still working with tools that are focused on Islamist groups when the problem we're trying to solve is far right and white supremacist violence. I guess the last thing I'll say, I am hopeful. I know that GIFCT is in a process of uh, sort of creating its work plan for the upcoming year. Um, They are working with some of the other groups I mentioned, and I'm hopeful that they're going to take this problem seriously and that it's going to be integrated into the work plan. And in particular, that they put resources into it because there are very challenging legal questions. As I mentioned, there's challenging questions around privacy, around surveillance. Uh, So I I just hope to see more resources put into this issue. Quickly on that point of resources, because this is something I've raised out of concern with, you know, indeed the need to resource this, but not competing with civil society for resources, because now that the GIFCT has spun itself off into a non-governmental organization, um, it's talking about going to foundations and other um, philanthropic supporters. Do you think that is the right approach? Should it remain funded by the industry and by governments who are, for example, committed to the Christchurch call, including most recently the United States, which joined the call um, just a week prior to the anniversary summit? You know, here's where um, I have to give some unvarnished uh, praise to the Facebook Oversight Board, which is unusual, um, but in the sense that the Facebook Oversight Board got 
funding that was put into a trust that Facebook cannot touch. Even if Facebook decides tomorrow that they're really tired of the oversight board telling them to make their dangerous organizations list public, um, they can't defund the, the oversight board because they legally cannot touch that money. And I bring this up because I think that that frankly should be a model. Absolutely should companies and governments be supporting this financially. Um, and particularly supporting civil society's participation and all of the research that we know needs to go into actually understanding this problem. Yes, but they cannot be influencing that work. So um, in whatever way we could think of creating some sort of pool of money that they really don't control, that has an independent trust controlling it and distributing it, absolutely. I think that they should be supporting it, but without being able to influence it. And that's a, that's a fine line to walk, which is why I suggest the legal separation. Yeah, I think that's something that we're going to see more attention paid to as the gift CT becomes better known, includes more companies and has a greater influence over what remains in the scene online. Before we wrap up, I would be remiss if we didn't end with a question about what's happening in Israel-Palestine, given that we, you know, you mentioned the issue of definitions of terrorism. Um, clearly, this is about non, you know, in the gift CT and the Christchurch call, it's about non-state actors. Um, there is a definitional question or debate um, in Palestine and Israel about what qualifies as terrorism. We've heard a lot about censorship of uh, social media, citizen journalism, uh, professional journalism coming out of Palestine. Does this have any relation to what we're seeing happening with the Christchurch call and the gift CT? Is this something that they need to be on top of or is this a separate issue? This is absolutely not a separate issue. And I, I found it rather disturbing, honestly, to be in the summit on Friday, um, Saturday for New Zealand, having this discussion, being very excited about all the collaboration and, and moving forward, uh, knowing that literally as we were sitting there, Palestinian content was getting deleted. Live streams that people where people were documenting attacks as they were happening to them, live streams where people were depending on the live stream for the world to see it and to protect their safety, documentation of shellings, people just sharing their political ideas, all of this type of content was getting deleted as we were sitting there. So does it need to be part of the discussion? Absolutely, because one of the underlying reasons why that content gets taken down is this focus on terrorist and violent extremist content and, and the existence of Hamas in Palestine. And so as I mentioned, you know, counter speech can get taken down, but we don't know all of the factors that are fed into the algorithms that are looking at this content. And we certainly don't know very much about the people who are working for Facebook doing that content moderation. All sorts of bias has creeped into it. And if we want to, you know, one of the pieces of the Christchurch call is strengthening societal resilience, upholding human rights in a free and open, secure internet and strengthening societal resilience to terrorism and violent extremism. We will not be successful in that if we continue to silence people who are seen as related to terrorism and violent extremism, but are trying to struggle for their human rights. We cannot do that. Frankly, I think ensuring human rights for everybody would be the best way to deal with terrorist and violent extremist content. But in the meantime, we have to at least consider that this is going to have a negative impact overall, rather than the positive impact that the signatories to the Christchurch call think that it will have. Uh, I think that's a great point. And to wrap up on, I mean, the point about focusing on content does seem to be working way down the stack of where the issues related to extremism and 
terrorism relate? You know, all of the societal, political, economic factors that contribute to that. But hey, let's focus on the content layer. So thank you so much, Dia, for discussing with us kind of what some of the core issues at hand are here and how this relates to some of the topics in the news. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about what's happening in Palestine and Israel in the coming weeks. And in the meantime, uh, thanks for the work that you're doing with the Advisory Network. Thanks for having me on. Next up, we hear from New York State Senator Anna Kaplan, who is the chair of the Committee on Commerce, Economic Development, and Small Business. A Democrat from the 7th District, Kaplan joined with Assemblymember Patricia Fahey, a Democrat from Albany, to introduce proposed legislation that calls for new rules on the moderation of hate speech and misinformation on social media networks. Announced shortly after the Facebook Oversight Board's decision on Donald Trump, the board criticized Facebook for its inconsistent application of unclear policies, The bills aim to ensure social media community standards are enforced consistently and transparently. The bills reflect a growing trend among lawmakers at the state and federal level. For instance, a proposed bill in California bears some similarity to the New York proposal. And in Congress, Representative Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat from Illinois, and Representative Kathy Castor, a Democrat from Florida, recently introduced a bill that would require more transparency and rulemaking on social content moderation practices. I spoke to Senator Kaplan about the New York bills, which are currently in committee. She referred to the real costs of misinformation to society, in particular related to COVID-19 and the false voter fraud claims that motivated the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So thank you, Senator. Um, I got in touch in particular because a couple weeks ago you announced a package of, of new legislation focused on hate speech and misinformation on social networks. Um, what are you trying to do with these with these proposed bills? So I know we're all very grateful how advanced technology has gotten and how we can get our information or uh, do our work in light of everything that's going on right now. Um, you don't have to be in the office. It's technology that is enabling us doing all of that. Having said that, I also think technology could be used in a very meaningful way or misused, misused in terms of um, the fact that a lot of information is put out there, whether it's through YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, different social media platforms. And it is really important that those facts to be checked. There is a lot of misinformation out there. And as we have seen, this, these misinformations spread like wild uh, wild fires or like a virus and could really ha- cause harm. We've seen that with our election. We've seen that with vaccinations. The importance of saying how important and safe vaccines are. Really, it is important for these platforms to come up with a, a community standard where people can post things, but if they are not accurate, someone else can easily report them and they would have a standard way of checking these um, facts or non, non, um, 
verified facts and take them down. We want to make sure that these platforms are really conducted in a safe manner. Social media should be safer for all of its users. Um, this is basically to come up with standards and guidelines that people can follow and make sure that um, the companies are held accountable. And so you're, you're targeting three specific things here. You've got election misinformation, You've got hate speech, you've got uh, vaccine uh, disinformation in particular. And how do you see this mechanism working? You're basically putting a kind of requirement on the tech platforms to um, uh, be more transparent about specifically um, how they would they would enforce these things. But I'm also interested in this, this use of the word transparently. What would transparent enforcement look like from your perspective? So I believe they should come up with some guidelines and they should be very clear and they should be transparent for every user. For example, today I was on the car traveling to come to the office for three hours. And um, if I wanna report something, I should be able to do that from my phone because I probably don't have access to my computer. You know, it shouldn't be just like, I remember at one point we tried to report something and because we didn't have our computer, we were not able to do that reporting. So if you're able to get that social media service on your iPhone, you should also be able to report on that iPhone. And for these social uh, media conglomerates to be able to come up with some guidelines that is easy, clear for all of their members to follow. And I wanna make sure everybody understand, this is not about, about freedom of speech. There are platforms out there, there are many platforms that as long as you make it clear to their users, to their members, what they stand for, by all means, they should go ahead and do so. But in a time that we are seeing a lot of people use social media as a place where they get their news and their information, it is really important for all of us to make sure that that news and those informations are accurate. Has there been a cost to New York State of, of COVID disinformation in particular? Have you, have you seen that play out in, in New York? I don't have anything in writing, but I think that is actually very, very clear based on uh, vaccine hesitancy. I think when CDC came out and said, we're gonna put a hold on uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, we saw a big drop in uh, people going out and getting vaccines. And I think it was really the people who were saying vaccines are not safe coming out again and saying, see, we've told you so. I think if you look at it, it is really important that we really try to come up with some guidelines, that these conglomerates can come up with some guidelines that people are aware as to what they're really reading. And sometimes maybe even help them to question what it is that they're reading and look for other resources to find out that they're getting the accurate information. That's really what the goal is. I think these bills are a good start, but let me tell you, it is just a good start. There is so much more that we need to do. This is just opening the conversation. So what does happen next? Um, these are essentially, a, you know, a package um, on some level. They've, you know, they've got some duplicative elements. 
Um, they'll go into a committee process now. Um, how does it work from here? So they'll go into a committee. Once they come out of a, the committee, we would be able to schedule them to come to Senate floor. We'll pass them hopefully on Senate floor. The assembly has to do the same thing. It has to pass by both houses. And once it's passed by both houses, it will go to the executive for his signature so that then it would become law. Do you have a sense that in, uh, in the New York you know, legislature that there's more enthusiasm about tech regulation generally uh, than there has been in past, both on mis and disinformation, but on other issues such as privacy? I believe there is. I think we're all really, based in the last few months, we've seen how the misinformation can really impact our communities, our people, our residents. So I think there is definitely a, uh, an enthusiasm for wanting to do this. Have you had any response on these bills or uh, on other tech issues from your constituents? Are, are folks out there asking for these types of uh, actions or are Absolutely. you feeling any grassroots energy around it? Absolutely. There are a lot of people who've been asking us for this for a while now. But I think just the, the impact of the last few months um, of the election, of the vaccine safety, of the misinformation, I think really has highlighted it and I think has brought it up to the surface. So there are a lot of people, a lot of our residents who are asking us to do this. And I think really in light of what happened January 6th, we're a different country. What transpired in Washington DC on the 6th was something that none of us would have ever imagined. And as you've seen, they've made a lot of arrests. And based on what I'm reading, a lot of people are trying to come up with answer as to why they did this. And they were really pointing out to social media. They heard it on social media and they thought that they should be there. So you're, you're taking on election disinformation specifically. Um, you know, do, do you have, you know, I guess in the back of your mind, there must be the fear that that kind of thing could happen in New York. Yes, I think where we are right now as a nation, I think we are very divided and people go to their own group and stay there. And if there's a lot of misinformation in that group posting, that's what they're getting. Our goal is to make sure whoever posts is posting accurately. And if those posts are not accurate, they should be taken down. And the person who's posting them should get notified why they were taken down. And you've got these three areas, I and mean, these are very core areas, hate speech, election disinformation, and COVID disinformation. So you, that you're talking about a kind of constrained set of issues where there needs to be, you know, special attention, essentially. You know, with regard to, um, you know, just election disinformation um, generally, you know, have you seen any of that in your own experience? Has there been um, any disagreement in either your constituency about the outcome of the 2020 election or um, anything that you would connect to that? So I can tell you, I represent a very diverse district in every sense of the word. And yes, there are a group, there is a small minority group that believes the big lie. I think you see that throughout this country. And based on everything, every news that I read or I hear, there are people out there, maybe a small percentage, but no matter how small, that believes in the big lie. Even though there's been 60 cases that have come out and has said the election was fair and there was no tampering of the election. 
Well, I wish you well with these uh, bills and um, I hope to maybe be back in touch with you in the future uh, on this and other tech policy issues. I thank you very, very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.